Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 through verse 15. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, you have called us to freedom. And I pray that this morning you would give us the ability to experience and enjoy that freedom just as you have given it to us in greater ways, deeper ways. Pray that you would do a work in our hearts and our minds, our desires, our passions, that you would conform us to Christ. You'd fill us afresh today with your spirit. Use this time for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome again. If this is your first time to New City, we've been working through the letter of Galatians that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. And essentially what you just got in the first 12 verses this morning is a summary of everything you've missed. Literally, the first 12 verses is a recap of the entire book, the entire letter. The banner that kind of waves over all of Galatians is verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Literally, Christ set us free for freedom. It's what it it's redundant and it's supposed to be. Because freedom is actually kind of the beginning and the end of the Christian faith. It's both the means, the ambition, the objection, the objective, and the goal. Jesus himself, when he came, his whole mission was an operation of liberation. You read the Old Testament, the New Testament, the stories are about God calling his people back into freedom, into right relationship with him, leading them, protecting them, guiding them, guarding them all the way to the land of freedom. And so verses 1 through 12 are just that, a recap of what we've been talking about. But what we do see here is some fresh encouragement and warning from Paul. What you're going to see is there are ways to lose or abuse your freedom. Then you're going to see that there is a way to experience and express freedom. And then you're going to see how we can get to the land of freedom. And so let's dive in this morning. Number one, what does Paul say about how we lose or abuse freedom? specifically in regards to legalism 
and indulgence. So if you look at verses 1 through 4, Pastor Mike has actually spent a lot of time here uh, in several of his sermons talking about how Christ has set us free from the law. Specifically, and this is just a brief recap, that we are not under an obligation to keep the commands of the law in order to be in right relationship with Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. That is really good news for us today. And so as you've heard over and over, there are these false teachers, these people, these influential men in Galatia are coming in on the example that Paul's giving here over a dozen times in Galatians is that they are trying to get these people free in Christ to submit to the law, specifically that of circumcision, saying, if you are not circumcised, you actually see this in Acts 15, then you are not saved. That's actually kind of what's, what's taking place. You're not in right relationship with God. And so the influence is strong. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so there are people who are giving in, walking away from their freedom. And Paul's like, I'm shocked that you're walking away from your freedom and you're going back into this yoke of of slavery. Don't submit again to the old way of living. And so there is definitely a way to lose your gospel freedom, lose the experience of your gospel freedom. And that is by submitting again to the law. But there's also a warning that Paul gives here that we haven't spent a lot of time on yet, and that is the abuse of freedom, that of indulgence. For example, if you look at verse 13, Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't abuse it. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul kind of sets the tone for um, all of our experience in this world. He says that we currently live in a present evil age. And so Pastor Mike wrote this responsive reading this morning. We read this thing together about the now and the not yet. You've probably heard the term if you've been around the church already, not yet. It's, It's this concept of we are experiencing many wonderful things of Jesus and his and his kingdom in incredible ways, and yet we don't experience them yet fully. So as Pastor Mike says over and over, the kingdom of God is afoot. And so there's glimpses of righteousness and joy and peace and there's restoration and healing and there's miracles and there's overcoming sin and yet it's not fully here. There's still brokenness and evil and wounds and bitterness and broken relationships and cancer and disease and you know physical and earthly disasters that we can't avoid. We live in a present evil age and as a result Our flesh is constantly looking for an opportunity not only to invade our lives and take back of control of what's been lost, but also to wage war in us and through us into the lives of other people. So Paul says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh is like the sworn enemy of your relationships and your community and Christianity. It's full of self-centered passions and desires that will wreak havoc in your life and the lives of those whom are around you. It's what James says in chapter 4. If you go to James chapter 4, you read the first three verses. James says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you fight, you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so James is basically like, well, you're seriously wondering why all of you are messed up? Because you're full of passions and selfish ambitions and you're desiring things for yourself. This is the cause of all of your quarreling, all your fights. It's the cause of the present evil age. And so perhaps maybe in our world, currently our culture, 
the greater enemy that we experience right now isn't always morality or legalism, but this indulgence in our flesh. And so, Paul says, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Because when you do that, you're not becoming more free. You're not experiencing more freedom. You're not expressing your freedom. You're actually becoming more enslaved. You're going back to your own selfish passions and desires and their Lord over your life. They're becoming your masters. They control you. They control your thoughts. They control your actions. They keep you up at night. And more than that, when we let the flesh gain access into our hearts, it gains access into our relationships and those around us. If you look at verse 15, it's seen pretty seriously. Paul says, if you bite and devour one another, in other words, if you use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The word can be translated destroyed. In fact, in some contexts in the New Testament, it literally is referring to like a judgment, destruction, like an eternal destruction, the end. Which is crazy because if you think about the purpose of the church, we are, Ephesians 4 says, to work properly and build one another up into love, into Christ who is the head. And so the Lord, the Spirit gives gifts and offices to the church that we would work together mutually and bear with one another and be humble with one another and love one another and build each other up. And Paul says, if you're going to like go rogue and be your own independent person, it's not just you you're affecting. You're literally actively a means in which other people's faith can be destroyed. And so don't use your so-called freedom as an opportunity for your flesh. It's not just about you. You're affecting other people. People who watch, people who know, people who you have influence over. God wants us to be free. And praise God, he set us free from the condemnation and the guilt of sin, but he's also, Paul is inferring here, He's freeing us from the motivation to sin. The implication here is you don't have to give in to your so-called fleshly lusts and desires and passions. Those things can and ought to change. Because what's going to happen is the Spirit of God is now going to, if you're in Christ, eat away at the old motivation to sin. But this is an ongoing like practice. And so Paul's saying you can't be passive here. If you're passive, you're either going to go into morality, legalism, or you're going to go into indulgence. And then the flesh is going to come in and creep in and wreak havoc. But if you are actively living by the Spirit, the Spirit of God is going to eat away at that motivation of sin. It's going to remind you that you are in Christ because of His righteousness. So, Paul says, don't lose your freedom, church, by turning back to the law. And certainly don't abuse your freedom by using it as an opportunity for your flesh. Secondly, Paul talks about the experience and the expression of freedom. The experience that you ought to feel freedom around you and in you. And the expression you ought to live and speak and move and breathe freedom to those around you. And that is faith working through love. Look at verse 13 through 15. You're called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. And then Paul quotes Jesus by saying the whole law is fulfilled in one word, one command, one exhortation. The whole stinking thing comes down to this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, man. The Bible is overwhelming. Remember when I was getting my MDiv, there was this one Old Testament survey activity that we had to do in one of my classes. 
you basically had to go through every book of the Old Testament and just, the, the question of the quiz was just it listed the, the Old Testament book and then you had basically a paragraph or less to kind of sum up the entire book. <laughs> How would you do? <laughs> I think I got like an A minus. I better. And I remember preparing for this quiz and I've read much of the Old Testament over and over and I just thought like, man, there's so much to remember. The Bible is so big, it's overwhelming. There's so many stories, there's so many prophecies, there's so many connections, there's so much imagery, and there are rules and commandments littered throughout, and it's just, even in this context, Paul is basically saying, hey, don't get caught up in legalism, but don't get caught up in indulgence. Like, don't look to the law for your morality, but also, like, don't use your passions. And it can seem kind of overwhelming and even paralyzing to figure out, like, well, where's the middle ground where I'm supposed to be? Because it's kind of like you're saying, like, don't think too much about this, and then don't think too much about that. And you, anybody ever feel as a Christian, like, just tell me what I'm supposed to do? <laughs> It'd be so much easier if this was, like, you know, eight words. And it was like, here's how you should live your life. And actually, that's kind of what happens here. You know, your, your life is full of things like, you know, how often am I supposed to go to church? How much am I supposed to give? How many times am I supposed to forgive somebody? What am I allowed to watch? What am I not allowed to watch? What am I allowed to eat? What am I not allowed to eat? Where am I supposed to go or not supposed to go? What am I supposed to say or not supposed to say? That's why Paul, quoting Jesus, says like literally the most freeing thing here. He's like, none of this other stuff counts. Verse 6, circumcision, uncircumcision, the whole law, everything you need to know about Christian life following Jesus is summed up in this statement. Here's what you need to remember. Love one another. The whole thing. Let that guide you. Let that be the mold in which you live and move and breathe. Let that exhortation control your actions and your words. And so then you think about, well, how many times am I supposed to go to church? And rather than like trying to figure out all the exhortations and commands in Scripture that are supposed to remember to navigate these principles, it's like, no, there's one principle. How often you should go to church? Well, you're supposed to love one another. And so what does that mean for your church attendance? Well, the Bible says, because the days are evil, don't neglect gathering, but come together all the more so as the day is drawing near of Jesus' return, and stir up one another to love and good works. And you're like, you know what? It's important for me to show up because I need people to love on me and people need me to love on them. And you think about, well, how much am I supposed to give? 10%, 11%, 9%, 5%, the whole thing? It's like, just give generously. That's, that's, love your neighbor. Give so that people can receive what they need in moments of need and then give above that when you can and the Spirit of God leads you to because there's going to be more needs. Just give generously. And it's like, well, how many times am I supposed to forgive this person? Should I keep forgiving them? And it's like, yes, because <laughs> that's what love does. It keeps no record of wrong. It believes all things. It endures all things. It hopes all things. Love never fails. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I allowed to eat this or drink this? And it's like, well, it depends on who you're with. Let what you eat and drink be loving to those around you. You see how very quickly you can kind of remove yourself from all this like heavy weight of all of these rules and commands and stories and prophecies and connections, and you're like, here's the guiding principle that Jesus tells me. Love one another. Serve one another. And let that guide you. Now Paul gives the example here, uh, circumcision as the thing that doesn't really matter, but it's just one example of many. 
You may think, it's kind of crazy. Verse 6, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, circumcision and uncircumcision count for nothing. They don't count for anything. Only faith working through love. And you, you kind of want to be like, Paul, I mean, you know the Old Testament really well. Like, it's quite a statement to say that circumcision, circumcision basically doesn't matter. Also, you've mentioned it like 12 times in this letter. <laughs> you mention it like in your closing paragraph, again, to make sure that people know they don't need to be circumcised. It's like, it seems pretty important to you, Paul. So what's the point? But in effect, what Paul is envisioning is this. Paul is envisioning the effect of, of circumcision on one standing before God on the last day. Meaning this. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised is not going to make any difference on the day of judgment. What ultimately counts in life and what ultimately matters on the day of judgment is faith working through love. Faith in Christ expressed in a life of love for God and others. Todd Wilson picks up on this statement from uh, Paul, and he says this. Neither premillennialism nor amillennialism, and if you are like, you already lost me, good. You've, you've accomplished the point of what Paul said. They don't count for nothing. Only faith working through love. Neither Arminianism nor Calvinism ultimately counts. Only faith working through love. Neither Congregationalism nor Presbyterianism ultimately counts. Only faith working through love. Neither teetotaling nor enjoying a glass of wine ultimately counts. Only faith working through love. Neither voting Republican or voting Democrat ultimately counts. Only faith working through love. Neither six-day young earth creationism nor old earth progressive creationism ultimately counts. Only faith working through love. Now listen to what he says here. It's not that you shouldn't care about these things. Nor does it mean that these issues are unimportant, not at all. Instead, it means, and listen to this, we must realize that these things are important only insofar as they promote faith and produce love. If they don't, we're missing what ultimately counts. For if we have not love, we gain nothing. Verse 6 says the only thing that matters is faith working through love. Faith, in other words, literally will energize love. If love's what, what matters, you recognize moralism can't energize love. Liberalism can't energize love. The reason is because both are essentially selfish and insecure. Moralism, legalism, is I'm insecure about my standing with God, and so I'm going to do more good things to prove to myself and others that I belong to Jesus. Insecurity. Whereas selfishness is indulging in freedom and doing whatever I want, not caring who it affects because I'm free in Christ and grace runs and abounds, which is just selfishness. It's not caring for others. Cannot produce love because love is joyful self-giving. Paul calls it a new creation in chapter 6. Eugene Peterson says it this way, In Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion actually amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, faith that is expressed in love. You see, freedom is something you either lose, abuse, or use. Meaning you're either going to forfeit freedom for legalism, you're going to abuse it for your flesh, or you will experience the increasing fullness of it through love. The kind of freedom 
Paul is talking about is the kind of freedom that gives you the ability to enjoy Jesus, to know him, to become more like him. There is no one more joyful and no one more free than Jesus. And how did he live and press into this joy and freedom? Laying down his life for others. Through love, serving those around him. And so you can say, in many ways, that you will never experience freedom and joy to the fullest until you, like Christ, lay down anything necessary so that you may serve others through love. Love never fails. You know, you even think about heaven, like love is, love is the main experience, the full expression of our relationship with Christ in heaven. Jonathan Edwards calls heaven a world of love. You look at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. It's because when we're in heaven, faith will become sight, hope will become sight. Romans 8 says, who hopes for what he sees? But love, love will remain. It never fails. All that counts is faith working through love. In fact, faith apart from love is useless. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13 in the beginning, Paul says, if I have all faith, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, this incredible act of seemingly selflessness, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but it's not from love, I gain nothing. And so faith apart from love is nothing, but without faith you cannot love. This is how Paul defines the activity of faith in this chapter, verse 5. So look at verse 5 with me, and we come to the final word this morning, how to make it to the land of freedom. In verse 5, Right after this warning, Paul says, through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We've talked about that concept of the already, not yet. The kingdom of God being afoot, yet not fully experienced or expressed yet. You see this here, because you're kind of like, well, wait a second. If I am in Christ, aren't I already righteous? So why am I waiting for the hope of righteousness? And so, yes, if you are in Christ, you are in right standing before God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, in him we have become the righteousness of God. He took our sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we are righteous in standing now, and yet we're awaiting the full experience of that righteousness. Because though you are declared righteous and good and perfect before God Almighty, anybody yet feel that way? No. <laughs> it's like... Oh, man. We're just messed up. There's a lot of indulgence in the flesh that's still alive and active in our hearts, our desires, our passions, our flesh. And so it's like, oh, man, I am righteous, Lord, but am I ever awaiting the day for when I'm going to be completely and finally free from the power and the presence of sin? Totally righteous, not just in standing, but in experience. And so Paul says... How do we live in this already, not yet? How do we get to the point where we are sure that we will make it to the end and be fully righteous? We eagerly wait through the Spirit for the hope of righteousness. There's a, there's a strong warning in verse 4 just before this that I think is one of the most common experiences actually of Christianity. One of the most profound experiences of Christianity is supposed to be freedom, yet I think that one of the most common experiences of Christianity is often doubt or fear. You know, you, you read a verse like four, and he's like, okay, if you want to go to circumcision as the self-appointed Savior for your righteousness and your morality, what you're doing is you are separating, separating yourself from Christ. You're severing yourself from Christ. In fact, if you do this, 
he says that you are falling away from grace. You're kind of like, whoa. One of the most common questions I think that Christians wonder about is, am I really a Christian? (laughs) And how do I know? If you are even wondering that today, you're not alone. The Bible has language for this. It's a normal experience, actually, in the brokenness of this world, in this present evil age. In fact, the question itself does not mean you're not a Christian. It's a really good question to ask. Because there are warnings of like being severed from Christ. There's warnings of like it being possible to fall away from grace. I mean, it's one of the most common conversations I've had in ministry in this building for 15 years. One of the most popular things that I talk about is people are like, how do I actually know I'm a Christian? And then if they're like, okay, I know I'm a Christian, but how do I know I'm going to make it to the end? And they hear these warnings, and they're like, you know, what if that's me? And then you hear the, you know, the Christian thing, you know, you go to 1 John 2, 19, it's like, no, 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 the people who walk away, walked away to prove that they were never of us. And you're kind of like, is that going to be me? <laughs> and you're terrified. It's overwhelming. And so what do we do? What do we do in those moments? We ask ourselves questions like, okay, do I believe enough? Do I know enough of the Bible? Have I, you know, killed enough sin? Am I different than I was 10 years ago? Am I better than people who I think are Christians? (laughs) Am I as bad as people who I don't think are Christians? And the comparison game happens. Like, do I, am I, am I giving enough? What do I need to do? You see what's happening? Moralism, legalism. What do I need to do to really convince myself and give myself assurance that I belong to Jesus? That I'm actually a good person. I'm doing enough. The tug of our flesh is going to be to press into some kind of to-do list to give us some sense of assurance. Because we're also going to look at our hearts and our past and go, there's a whole lot of evidence that I don't belong to you. We try to use morality to give us assurance today and to get us to tomorrow. We try to prove to ourselves that we're different, that we're changed. And that is like the most enslaving thing. It's exhausting. When is it enough? When have I done enough to make make up for my old sin? When has my heart changed enough? How do I get there? This is why what Paul says is amazing in verse 5. On the, on the heels of the warning of those who could fall away from Christ, he says this, here's what you do. Here's how you make it to the end. By the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Meaning this. This is literally what it means. Don't stop believing. Now, that is the most tangible Christian advice I think I've ever given. I'm serious. I mean that. The Lord is my witness. I think that's the most tangible advice I've ever given in my life. You want to you know how you're going to make it to the land of, the, of, of, of freedom? You want to get to the end? Don't stop believing. I mean, literally, that's it. You wake up in the morning and you're like, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. <laughs> I've got to trust you today. I need you today. The only work that is required to get it to the end is faith. Now, the ones who make it to the end, the ones who don't fall away, they're not the ones who are less sinful than you. They're just the ones who keep believing. 
They keep showing up. They keep praying. They keep rehearsing the gospel. They keep renewing their mind. They keep setting their mind on Christ. They keep clinging to Jesus. They keep treasuring Jesus and trusting Jesus and pursuing Jesus and enjoying Jesus. And some days are easier and better and there's more growth than others. Amen? But every day is new. There's more mercy. There's more grace. There's another wave of renewal. Pastor Mike last week was like, you know, you get punched in the face and you're like, all right, let's go again. Then you get punched in the face and you're like, let's go again. Then you get punched in the face like, let's go again. That, that is the Christian life. We live in a present evil age, and your flesh is going to want to indulge in itself. And the enemy is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. He's come to steal and kill and destroy. The only thing you got is Christ. It's the only hope. You'll never be good enough. You'll, you'll never outperform the wickedness of your past. And how, how freeing to know you don't have to. Pastor Mike, I, th I, it, I think last week was one of the moments that actually like changed my life. I, it's too early to tell. Because <laughs> it's been seven days. So everybody just calm down with the hyperbole. But I'm pretty sure there was a statement that Pastor Mike made last week probably in passing, because if, if you ever look at Pastor Mike's notes, it's like six words. I don't know how he does it. I got like 25 pages, you know, just word for word up here. Not important. Anyways, I mentioned this in Sermon Plus this last Tuesday. Pastor Mike talked about the practice of getting out of bed and getting on your knees immediately and saying, not my will, but yours be done. And it's like... This last week, I've, I've done that the majority of the week, and it, it, it's just a game changer. Because immediately in the morning, I, I recognize that my life and my day and my body and who I am doesn't belong to me. None of it does. I recognize that there's going to be trouble ahead of me, and I desperately need the Spirit of God to help me and go before me. I wake up, and I'm reminded of the brokenness around me. I'm like, I just got to trust you. I have no idea what you're doing. I have no idea what's going on. But I know you're faithful. I know you're with me. I know your promises. I'm picking up those promises. I'm putting them in my pocket, and I need you to get me through the day. I believe in you. I believe in you. And then Paul's like, that's it. That's what you do. You want to make it to the end? You eagerly wait for righteousness. That's how you don't fall away from grace. That is what you cling to. You can't cling to the law, and you can't go off and indulge in yourself. The only thing that matters is faith that works through love. And so you wake up and you say, Lord, I believe in you. And I'm yours. And so now today I'm going to go and you're going to lead me in your love to love those around me. That's why I exist today. And then at the end of the day, you say, Lord, I still believe in you. Give me rest. It's like every day, just ask Jesus to hold you deeper. In verse 1, Paul says, For freedom Christ Jesus has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. The enemies of your freedom are legalism and indulgence. So don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, and don't forfeit your freedom by going back to morality. Secondly, the greatest expression and experience of love or of freedom is faith working through love. It's the whole thing. 
It's the guiding principle for your life. It's what you need to remember today and when you wake up. And here's how you know you're going to make it all the way to eternity. By the work of Christ, trusting and resting in the Spirit, you just keep believing. You just keep showing up. Let's bow our heads. Lord, this room is full of testimonies of failure. Word freedom sounds so nice, but it seems so far away, I know, for so many. Would you help us today to actually understand how much you love us? That you want us to be free? You're not trying to punish us You're not requiring us to prove that we love you. You've proven you love us. And so in in that reality, would you help us to experience freedom? Taste it, love it, know it, see it. Would you help us to express, experience that freedom by loving others? We love because you first loved us, but because of how much we've been loved, Lord Jesus, Oh, man. How could we keep that love to ourselves? Please help us to serve one another. And Lord Jesus, the Christian life can be discouraging. It's hard. It's hard outside of us, and it's really hard inside of us. You don't want us to be walking around doubting and wondering if we actually belong to you, if you actually love us, if you actually died for us. You want us to have confidence and to approach you in confidence, to know the love that you have for us. And so, Lord, increase our faith. Help us just to go another day, another day, another day, another day, another day, to fight against the flesh, to fight against the devil. This is why serving one another through love is so crucial because people need to be encouraged and strengthened and picked back up from the daily battle with their flesh and the enemy. Oh, God, help us. Why don't you take a few moments where you are and in your own words, just respond to the Lord in prayer as the Spirit of God has led you and moved in your heart this morning.